You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right. Well, in preparation for this week, I, uh, I got on Google. I got on Google, and I wanted to see the, some famous trios in history, right? Some famous trios. And so there's the obvious, right? You got the Three Stooges, the Three Musketeers, but I was surprised at some of them. The Three Amigos, for those in the 80s, right? I did a little thing, but I forgot it. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Those are not Bible characters. Those are all the old people know who they were, right? Uh, so a little band from the 60s, right, Clayton? That's your favorite. There you go. Um, salt and Pepper, right? I thought that was Salt and Pepper, Salt and Pepper. But apparently there was an, a third, DJ Spinderella. Didn't know that. Things you learn on Google, right? Um, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Powder Puff Girls. Don't know who they are. The number one trio, though, all right? The number one trio. Some of you nerds get this, right? And if I pronounce this wrong, sorry, I get the first one. Harry, Ron, and is it Hermione? Hermione? Okay, see? This, you think I'm nerdy because I watch Star Wars. Y'all are worse, okay? And y'all has witchcraft, you pagans, right? Yeah, see? I don't read these unholy Harry Potter series books, right? right? That's the number one trio, right? All, and, and, Different reasons, they're all in you know, a famous trio. Uh, we're gonna look at a very unfamous, that's not a word, I just made it up, but it's an unfamous trio today um, out of Judges chapter three. So I'm gonna introduce you to three guys who in a day where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, they didn't. They did it right. So today, as we kind of work through continuing our, in our series in the book of Judges, which we've talked, said is, we, we named it, Everyone Needs a King, we're going to look at three dudes. Othniel the Ideal, Ehud the Sinister, and Shamgar the Who. All right? This is what we're going to be looking at today. These are guys who live in a time, no king, and God uses them and, and brings hope to his people uh, as they kind of continue through this cycle of sin that we looked at last week. And just like them... We are living in a time when everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes, and people need some hope. The world is broken, and God, whether you know it or not, is still doing great things. God is still restoring. He's still redeeming. He's still moving, despite what we may see. And y'all, I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that. I want our church to be part of what God is doing to redeem a broken city of Savannah and beyond. And so we're going to look at these guys' stories and kind of see what we can learn from them as uh, is, is we kind of unpack what they've been doing, all right? And so remember where we were last week is, is this, this book is, is a 350-year period in Israel's history. That's a quarter of Israel's history in the Old Testament. So that's, that's a big portion of Israel's history. And it kind of fits right in between the, the monarchy, right? The first king Saul and David and Solomon. And Elizabeth. It's the time in between that, but also what, where Joshua leads them in the land and they start conquering. So out of the Exodus, Moses, Joshua. Okay, that's when we pick up Judges and that goes all the way to the first king. So it's a lot of time. And what we saw in, in chapter one was when they go in the land and Joshua says, break, go take the land, they, they start compromising. And that leads to chapter two, where you have a whole generation that does not know God, right? And so we saw this cycle, last week we talked about it, this Groundhog Day, this, this repeated thing that's gonna keep coming and keep coming and keep coming every week, where they fall into sin, sin of idolatry, and then God brings them into servitude of some nation, some king, for a certain amount of time, until there's repentance, there's sorrow, they cry out to God, 
And then he raises up a, a judge and brings salvation, right? And so we're going to see that happen today. We're going to see that unpack as the first two cycles of as we look at as, uh, chapter three and these judges finally show up. And let me just give you a heads up, right? Last week was a little bit heavier. This week's a little bit lighter, right? This, these narratives, especially one of them, are meant, it's a little, you can see a little bit of Hebrew humor today, right? So if you're not familiar with this passage, you will be afterwards, you'll see what I'm meaning. Because there's a, it's meant to be funny. For, so if you came to church and you're this normal, you're like, church is for the serious people and we should never smile, then you might wanna leave right now because this is, this is a little bit of a lighthearted passage and you're gonna walk, we're gonna walk through it, I'm gonna explain it a little bit and you're gonna be like, surely he cannot be serious. And I am serious and don't call me surely, all right? Okay, so... <laughs> So just a little bit of heads up for you. It's going to get the little, t- the, the little boys in the room today. There's a little bit of potty humor here. They're going to be really excited. You're going to have good conversations around lunch, okay? So let's jump in uh, and let's see what's going on here, okay? Chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and Asheroth. There's the first step on the Groundhog Day, right? Sin, right? They forget their God. They serve the Asheros. We talked about it the first week. When you have spiritual amnesia, it leads to apostasy. So they did the evil, and that's the start of the cycle. So verse eight, therefore, because of that, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishtaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people served Cushan Rishtaim eight years. So their sin, there's your servitude. And God sells them into the hands of this guy. That his name, his given name probably is not Cushan Rishtaim, right? Because that means Cushan, the doubly wicked. And no one gives birth to little boys like, oh, he's so cute. Let's call him wicked evil boy. All right? So, so this is a name that the Israelites gave him. And we see this all the time, right? When you want to mock your, your boss or your, your rulers or whatever, you make up nicknames. Well, they call him Cushan the doubly wicked. And they serve him for eight years. It's a long time. That's high school and college. Well, some of you high schools in college is 10 years, but for most people, high school, college, eight years, right? That's a long time to be under the doubly wicked guy. It's a long time to have your cattle stolen, to have your crops raided, to have your kids attacked. It's a long time to be in slavery, right? Just like maybe for some of us, so you've been bitter for eight years. You've been angry about whatever, for a long time. You, you've had conflict in this relationship for a long time. You've, you've had that addiction that you haven't dealt with for eight years, right? There's been this thing that you've been just playing with for eight years. And just like Israel, for, for maybe for you, it's, it's time to kind of wake up and see what's going on. So they do, verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there's the sorrow, right? They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverance for the people of Israel who saved them. This word saved is gonna constantly gump through the book. It's the Hebrew word yasha, right? We hear in the name Yeshua or Jesus, Yahweh saves. It's the same verb, right? Joshua, Yahweh saves. Jesus, Yahweh saves. That this judge was going to yasha. He was going to save them. And the first judge we see is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And we introduce you to our first of the unfamous trio, Othniel the ideal, right? Why do I call him that, right? 
Well, let's, let's look a little bit at, at, at what it says about him. He is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The text is a little bit ambiguous here. We don't know if Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother or Othniel is Caleb's younger brother. The difference is this. If, if, if Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother, then Othniel is Caleb's nephew. If Othniel is Caleb's brother, then he's his brother. That's pretty obvious, right? These are either way, we don't really know. Probably it's his nephew. But either way, what we do know is this guy's got good pedigree. He comes from the right family, right? Uh, Caleb's a bigwig. Caleb's a, a, the one of the two guys of the old school that actually made it into the land. He was one of two guys in the whole nation that was faithful. So he comes from a good family. He's from the right tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. He has got the right experience. You go back to chapter one, we kind of blew by it in the first chapter, but what you see is Caleb says, whoever takes that city, I'm giving him my daughter as, as his wife. And, Caleb, and Othniel looks over and is like, she's a cutie, I'm in. And he goes up and he attacks the city and he wins. So he's a man of proven past, he's got courage. He is the ideal. I mean, when you're young on the recess field, you're choosing teams for kickball or dodgeball, first guy picks Othniel, I got Othniel. I got Othniel, he's, he's the one we want, right? And here's, here's what I want us to see. It's, easier for, it's easy for us to gravitate to the guy that comes from the right family, that's got the right past, that's got the squeaky clean this, he's handsome, he's the quarterback, he's Tom Brady, although Tom Brady's not, he's satanic, but, but if he wasn't a New England Patriot, right? Everyone wants Tom Brady. This is, Othniel's Tom Brady. Everyone wants to follow that guy, right? Because of course he's gonna be successful. But see, that's not, what the te- that's not why the text says he was successful. Does he have the right pedigree? Yes. Does he have a right past? Yes. Does he have a right family? Yes. Then what does the text say? It says that the Lord raised him up, verse 9. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and, judged, and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave him doubly wicked Cushan. Right? So, yes, he has the right family, but that's not why God used him. That's not why he was successful. He was successful because the spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's important. We're going to come back to it, but because we, we judge by externals. All externals, right? It's got to be, you got to be this, 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 and this. That's, that's not how God, that's not what God looks at. And if you're going to judge only by externals, then let me, let me remind you that you would have missed the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate Yasha, who was not from the right family. He was from the wrong family. He was not from the right town. He was from a little redneck town called Nazareth, that there was nothing about him that would attract you to him. Right? That, that he, he was rejected. He was the stone that was rejected. Yet the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Right? And so we're going to come back to that. But that is Othniel the ideal. All right? Let's continue in the text. Verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. It's a long time. That's good. 40 years of peace. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Right? 40 years is not only good because it's 40 years of peace, but 40 years is also just enough time to forget what God has done. And that's what they do. Verse 12, people of Israel again did what was right, evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we go again, cycle, Groundhog Day. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in his sight. There's your servitude. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. That's some serious time now. Now we're getting into some serious, serious servitude, serious length of being under the yoke of somebody else, Eglon and his little group of men who he kind of gathers together, right? And that 
the fact that they would take Jericho, the first place that they kind of won when they crossed the Jordan River, super humiliating, right? So what's God do? The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there's our sorrow. And the Lord raised up to them a deliverer, a judge, Ehud, the son of Gerah. Now here's kind of where the story gets interesting. And here you get a little Hebrew humor, right? So let's, let's talk about Ehud, the sinister, right? Ehud, the sinister. What do we know about him? It says he is a Benjamite, a left-handed man. Here's the irony. Benjamin means son of my right hand, all right? Yet he's a lefty. How many lefties I got in the room? Oh, look at you guys, poor souls. How hard is it to be a left-handed person in a right-handed world, am I right? I mean, I sat down in a left-handed desk one time and I was like, what am I doing here? You know, those in high school, you, I'm like, I can't do this. I don't know how y'all live. I just, I just don't know how you do it, right? Zippers, everything is a right-handed world, right? Everything we do. The scissors, remember in third grade, you pick up a pair of scissors and you're like, what is wrong with these scissors? They're lefty scissors. There's only like one pair in the whole box. You just got the one pair, right? It is hard, unless you throw 90 miles an hour, you're pretty much useless, right? As a left-handed person. That's, that's just the way, sorry. Now, I will encourage you. Let me, I, I did a little research on left-handed people this week. Just to encourage you, you do have some things going for you. Number one, you're more likely to be a genius. That's, that's good. Number two, you're more likely to be better at video games, believe it or not if you're left-handed. Number three, this is a fascinating one. You're more likely, you actually see better underwater than right-handed people. So you have these things. So if you wanna go kill zombies or go play sharks and minnows, you're gonna be good, okay? So, but even scripture seems to favor the right hand, right? Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is the place of honor. Even when it talks about God's mighty hand, it speaks of God, his mighty right hand, right? The left is actually a dishonor. In the, in the uh, Arab culture, you do not shake someone's left hand because when the Charmin runs out, that's what they use, right? I'm just, this is biblical. I'm just, that, the right hand is the hand of honor. Even English language and other cultures' languages favor the right. Our English word that we don't use a lot anymore, but the word gauche means to be awkward, Right? It's the French word for left-handed. The word dexterous, someone who's dexterous, they're, they, they're, they're quick, they're fast, they can use things. That's the Latin word for right-handed. The word sinister, evil, is the Latin word for left-handed. That's Ehud, the sinister, right? And really what I want you to see is the text is going out of its way to highlight this guy has some sort of issue. And it's actually a little bit ambiguous. It literally, the Hebrew says that he is bound in his left hand. So either he is bound in his right hand, excuse me. So either he's just normally a lefty or he's actually got some kind of physical handicap that he is forced to use his left hand. Either way, he is, he is not the guy on recess that you're choosing. He's the last guy picked. Fine, Ehud, we'll take you. And the text wants you to know that. Yet here he is, he's the one bringing the tribute to Eglon. And here's, the, here's kind of a little Hebrew humor. And it says, it says he's bringing the tribute. The Hebrew literally says he brings the tribute by his hand. 
right? So it's this little kind of joke. Remember, these guys are, he, this was written after the fact that it's to be told that, to the people and the kids and passed down and passed down. And this is kind of like their victory and you're gonna be mocking this guy. So this story is meant to be a comedy to them. Verse 16. So Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. First thing a nation does when they come in and conquer you, they take your ability away to fight. So there's no weapons. So he has to fashion his own weapon. It's a cubit in length, probably 14 to 18 inches. It says he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So he's packing heat, all right? But here's, here's what you need to know. See, normally a sword bearer, you pull your sword on your left, if you're right-handed, which is what most people are, and you're fighting, you don't wanna have a lefty next to you because his sword is on this side, and so you're fighting, you're fighting each other. So everyone who would carry the sword will be right-handed. You pull your sword from your left side because you can't, can't get it out. You can't get my sword out. You pull it across your body. Well, when you're checking a guy to see if he's got a sword, you're gonna check his left side. So he hides his sword on his right side, which you're not gonna check because he's left-handed, right? So he puts it under his clothes, right? On his right thigh, verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Eglon was a very fat man, right? Not politically correct. He's basically saying he's Jabba the Hutt, right? This is what he is. <laughs> and you can, here's, you can see the foreshadowing, right? You can see what's gonna happen. You got a guy, he's got a sword. You got a big old Jabba the Hutt. Something's gonna go pop. That's what's gonna happen. He's kind of leading you that way. So let's see how it unfolds. Verse 18. Now, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people. And the tribute would be cattle and, and produce and maybe some money, right? Every year it's their taxes. So he, all this group comes up and carries this kind of caravan of stuff and they leave. He sends the people who carried away the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Gilgal is a very special place for the Israelites. It's the first place when they crossed the Jordan River, they put 12 stones, one for each tribe, to remind themselves that how God had delivered them out of the wilderness, how he had delivered them across the Jordan River. So it's a special place for the Israelite. Now it's marked by idols. And this is the place that he says, you guys keep going, I'm going back. And he's going in alone. This is when like the tense music would kind of, you know, if, pick up. If it's, this is really like the Godfather. This is Michael Corleone going in to that little Italian restaurant, seeing those two guys. That's what this is. If you don't know that, maybe you're wrong. All right, verse the next one. And so he goes back and he says to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And of course the king is like, Ooh, I love a secret. Shh. Literally the word says, Hush. I don't want, this is for me, not for my guys. This is for me. And so all his attendants went out from his presence, right? And, here, and, and here's kind of where the tension builds. Right? You know what's coming. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. You know, it's hot in Jericho. This is a big Jabba the Hutt dude. So he goes to the roof where there's probably some lattice. It's like his screen porch. So there he is. He's kind of sitting in his Adirondack chair. He's got his mint julep. Here's Ehud sitting there and he says, I have a message for, from God for you. Literally, he says, I have a word of God for you. And the king stands up, right? And I have my kind of sanctified imagination here. I don't, you know, it doesn't say how this went, but you gotta figure, Ehud had to have practiced this deal, right? I mean, how many times did he go through this in his mind? I gotta be quick, I gotta be fast, I gotta be lightning, and so he would have, you know, got, you know just practiced it and practiced it over and over, because he's got one shot. If the king's able to grab him, if the king's able to yell to his men, help, it's over. So here's how I picture it. I don't know if this happened. We'll TiVo when we get to heaven and see, right? So, so the king stands, and then maybe Ehud gets down on one knee to kind of share this word. And then with one just 
left-handed, I guess this side, I'm right-handed, I'm normal. All right, so it would have been this way, this knee, all right? So with one, just like one motion, he pulls it out and he throws all of his 132 pound weight into the biggest target he's got, Jabba's belly, right? And he thrusts it in, throws it in, right? Why did we, see, some of you are like, why? I would read the Bible if I'd see more of this in here, right? And then he reached with his left hand, he took the sword from his right thigh, he thrust it into his belly and the hilt went in after the blade. The whole thing goes in, all 15 inches of it. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly. He's like, that is gone. I'm not going in after that. I'm not going in after that. That's not coming out. But something did come out. The, the, the King James is so polite here. It says the dirt came out. I'm like, who's got dirt in him? What's dirt? Right? The, the New Living Translation, I think, it says his bowels emptied. That's what happened. The dung came out. So, right, so what you have is this bloody doo-doo mess all over the place. And Ehud's standing there and Jabba's down on the floor. And this is where this, this, is where this kind of tension even builds more. So you have this split screen going on now, right? This is kind of like Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne coming out of the tunnel and you know, the men going, the, this is what you got going on, right? What's gonna happen? So Ehud went on the porch, he closed the doors behind him and he locks them. Get that picture. And then, and then verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber locked, they surely he is relieving himself. The Hebrew literally says he's covering his feet. It's a nice way of saying he's using the restroom, right? You go in the bathroom and you see, how do you know someone's in the stall? Because they're, they're covering their feet, right? You see the pants. That's the idea, right? And so they, they, and the reason why, this is where the Hebrew humor comes in, the reason why they think that is they're like, woo, son. This is where we get the phrase, do not go in there, comes from, right? Or, or it smells like someone died, all right? This is, what, this, this is what's going on. You think I'm, this, is, this is why I said, surely you can't be serious. So they go up and they're like, he must be in the bathroom. Meanwhile, you see Ehud sneaking out the front gate, right? And then it says they waited till they were embarrassed. They're like, what, is go- what did he eat? What is going on? And, and there goes Ehud out the front and he's walking up the hill. And then, and then you see this idea of they're like, somebody's got to knock. I mean, he's been in there forever. And then there's Ehud way down the road. And finally, they're just like, we, we, got, we got to go in. And we, did he fall in? We got to go check. And so they took the key, they opened, and they know what we know, that there is their Lord dead on the floor. And meanwhile, Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And then it says, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet. Here's what's interesting. The word for sound of the trumpet is the same word for thrust, the sword. Same verb. He, he gathers the people. The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. They're at the Jordan River. They're trying to get back east. That's where Moab was. And so they just sit there at the river and they, they kind of cut off the escape route. And he delivers them. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. 
Here's what you need. If, if, if they had rest for 80 years, you know what that means? That means Ehud was a young buck, by the way. Because what happens is when the judge dies, that is when they fall back into sin. So if Ehud lives 80 years, that means he, he's a young dude right now. Right? 16, 17, 18, right? And he is the gimp who's weak in his right hand. And he gives the land rest 80 years. Just to give you some, some, just to think about that, Moses only led the people of Israel for 40 years. This guy, he gives them peace for 80 years. I think that's significant, right? But 80 years is a lot of time, and then 80 years is a lot of time to, rem- to forget, right? And so we go into the last guy. So we got Othniel the ideal, we got Ehud the sinister, and then we got Shamgar the who. And why I named him that is because we don't know that much about him. The guy gets one verse. It's like 18 words in the Hebrew text. All right, here it is. It says this. It's what we know about. Oh, I, I jumped it. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So here's what we do know. His name is Shamgar. That is not a Jewish name. Doesn't mean he wasn't Jewish, but it certainly means that there's some sketchy influences in the home, right? Because if you're going to call your, your, your son a, a Hurian name, which actually means uh, the son of Anath, it's the Canaanite god of, of war and sex. If you're gonna name your son that, then you got some pretty strong influences that are, that are pagan. Right, so he, he probably comes from a little bit of a sketch background. And it says that he, he, his weapon of choice was an ox goad, which means he was some kind of shepherd or farmer. An ox goad, I could, there's like nothing on Google about ox goads, so I could, this is the best picture I could get for you. But it's a, it's a you know, six to eight foot stick. On one end, it's got a little hook, that's for cleaning out a plow. Right? It's a, it's a farmer's tool. So you're cleaning out a pot. The other end might have been dipped in metal. It's to prod your oxen to kind of, come on, let's go. It's like a shepherd's staff. Well, this guy takes this tool that he is pretty good with, and he goes all Jedi Knight and takes down 600 Philistines. Now, we don't know if it's one at a time. We don't know if it's 20 one time and 40 another. It doesn't tell us. All we know is that he, Yasha, he saved Israel he took what he had and he used it, right? Not very popular guy, but he, he's unfamous, but he was used by God uh, in his time, right? He saved Israel. So there's your unfamous trio, right? You can Google them, probably not gonna see them on any lists, but they're on God's lists, right? So let me give you some thoughts on these guys it's kind of hard when you read a passage like this. I mean, it's easy to kind of explain it and say, here's what's going on. That, and, and we can stop there and say, oh, I, I, know, I know about Ehud now. Isn't that great? But what we want to be as people is not just know what the scripture means. We want, how does this apply? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you to go out and start beating down Philistines, right? And don't go hiding knives on your thing and go attacking people, right? See, there's not a great one-for-one parallel because theirs is a very physical war, we're fighting a spiritual war. Theirs was a physical slavery. Ours is often a, a spiritual slavery. But there are some principles, I think, that, that we can take and say, okay, this is why God did this, and this is why God did this. So let me give you a couple. Let me give you two big picture, and then I'm gonna take one from each guy, and then we're just gonna respond in worship. And I'm, they're gonna be a little bit general, and here, here's why. I don't know what your situation is. I don't really know you personally like God does. You're gonna have to do a little work on here and take the big picture principle and start going to God yourself. Say, Holy Spirit, just lead me. What, what does this look like for me? Right? Like we say before, we're like Home Depot. You can do it, we can help. 
right? So we give you the big picture, but you're gonna have to go dig and start seeking God yourself. And that's the goal we want you to do. We want you to walk with God on your own and not be dependent on us. And so, so these are big picture things that you're gonna have to go kind of take the apply. But here's, let me give you two big picture ones right off the bat. Number one is this, and this is kind of the biggie on the eye chart, is that God wants to use his people. All right, I mean, and some of you are like, yeah, you no know, duh, right? Of course, we know that. I know we know that, but I think very few of us actually believe it, right? Very few of us actually believe that God wants his people to do great things. And he wants his people to be great. Now, I don't mean famous, because some of you have heard, oh, you know, Bill's getting in. No, no, God, God speaks a lot. Jesus speaks a lot of being great in the kingdom and it has nothing to do with fame or riches, Right? So greatness in the kingdom, it's actually, it's not how we think it would be. It's through humility and serving and giving and faith and obedience. But Jesus talks a lot about being great in the kingdom. God wants you to do great things. I don't mean famous things, but great things. And he has given us all unique potential and gifts and, and resources and abilities. And I think some of us, we don't use them. Right? And we don't see that. And it's not because of God. In fact, what the scripture teaches, I, I love this verse, is that God is actually looking, like he's omniscient, and so he, they, use, they use kind of a language of, that we understand. But it, he, it presents God as looking for people that, whose heart is fully is. I love this passage in Second Chronicles. And the context is Asa is the king, and the prophet comes to him and says, look, you beat the Ethiopians and you beat this people who had all these chariots and all these things. You were outnumbered. They were a greater army, but you beat them because you trusted in me. And then he says this, why? Because the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Some translations say whose heart's fully his. You have done foolishly in this from now on you have wars because Asa wasn't trusting. But this, I love this idea that God, think about this, it's a, it's a great idea, is, is scouring the earth. He's looking all over Scad. And you gotta look all over, because Scad's all over, right? Every, you know, he's looking all over Scad. And he's looking all over Gulfstream. And he's looking all over the port. He's looking at the high schools. And he's looking at the, the, the middle schools. And he's, and he's looking at the mechanics. And he's looking, he's scouring the earth, just looking for people whose hearts. He's not looking at the externals. How tall is that guy? How handsome is that guy? He's done that much hair. He's looking at the heart. This person's about me. And what does he say? He's get, he says, I'm gonna throw all my weight behind that guy. I'm gonna put all my support behind those people to strongly support him. Why? Because God wants to use his people, right? He wants to use us, right? And he doesn't want us to just kind of live on the surface. I don't wanna be a church where whether or not God shows up it doesn't really make a difference. Because that can happen, you realize that. You can go through the motions, you have just enough money to feel comfortable, and we don't really need God to show up. How, how tragic would that be? We don't wanna live that status quo. We wanna be a church that says, God, we need you to move and we need you to show up, and God's looking for people who believe that their God will not fail. Ehud, Othniel, Shamgar. He's looking for folks that are gonna throw it all behind. I love Ehud. I mean, again, the Jewish people are not big people. He's probably a 120-pound, 17-year-old dude, and he's got one shot, and so he throws all his 120 pounds into that sword. 
You got one lick, you might as well throw it all in. Go all in, Ehud. That's the kind of people God wants to get behind. You may only be a 120-pound left-handed dude. I'm going to throw in it all, get it, leave nothing on the table. That, that's what we want to be. It has nothing to do with gifts, family, male, female. It has everything to do with whose heart is fully his. So the question you got to do some work on is, is, as he's looking, is he seeing you? Is he throwing his weight behind you? It's, great, it's a great thing to remember. God wants to use his people. Second thing is this. Somebody needs to be first. Somebody sometimes needs to be first. There's this great scene. I know I've been kind of going to this well a lot lately, but it's, I just love it. And there's this great scene in the Band of Brothers, right? Got all the staff to watch it now. It's part of their discipleship process, all right? There's this great scene where Lieutenant Winters, they're surrounded, basically. They can't go backwards. They can't go to the side. They're trapped. They got to go forward. It's the only way to go forward. The only thing is they don't know what's forward. They have no clue. And he looks around at his guys. This guy's an amazing leader. I read his biography. It's just a fascinating man. He was a believer too. He's just really just a good dude. But he, he looks at his men. He just sees the fear in their eyes. They're just, you can just see it. They're just, and he, see, he tells them, he says, go on the smoke. They're gonna run across the field. They don't know what's to the other side of the field. Turns out there's a whole division on the other side of the field. But he says, Go on the smoke. And what he does is so fascinating. He throws the smoke grenade down and he takes off. And he knows there's going to be a delay because he wants to be out in front of his men. And he ends up like 50 yards in front of his men. And you know what? Once that smoke pops, they follow him. But somebody's got to be first. And sometimes you're going to go first and it's going to be like Ehud and people follow you. And that's awesome when that happens. And other times you're going to be like Shamgar and you're gonna be alone, and that's hard. But, and I think some of us sometimes, we may miss some of our potential because we're scared of being alone and we don't move. We need some folks that are willing to be like Ehud and be first, right? It's like Frodo in that great scene and he's in Rivendell and everyone's fighting about the ring and he stands up and says, I'll take the ring to Mordor. I just don't know how to get there. This little hobbit who says, I'll go. And then everyone follows him and it's great and you got a great movie and book, right? But that's the idea. We need some folks that are like that. God is looking for some folks, just like Ehud. And I think the, the image, the reason why the text says Ehud turns around at the idols, because I think when he gets to the idols, he's just like, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And, that, and that, that's the place where he turns back around because he's sick of it. Someone's got to do something. And God's looking for some people that say, I'm not, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to date. I know everyone's dating like this. I'm not going to. I know everyone's abandoning their spouse when things go. I'm not going to. I know, I know everyone's talking to their parents like this. I'm not going to. I know everyone's cheating on their, on their exams. And I know everyone's fudging the numbers. I am going to be different. I'm going to be distinct. Right? I know everyone's talking smack and slandering and gossiping. I'm not going there. I am going to stand. And if it means I need to stand alone, I stand alone. And it just, take, you know, it just takes one roommate. It just takes one family. It just takes one citizen, one high school student. Like, and God uses it. And that's what he wants to do. And you may feel alone, but here's what you need to know. Jesus says, you may feel alone, but you're never alone. 
You're never alone. You know what? You have a church that's here too. We're never really alone. So God uses his people. Sometimes someone needs to be first. And the question is, is that, is that you? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're going to be the one that says, we're, we're, this, our family's been going the wrong direction. Right? I don't know. That's something to think about. Next one. Let, me give you one. let me give you one word from each of these guys that kind of stands out to me. All right? One word from Othniel the Ideal, one Neil from Shebgar, one from Ehud, and then we'll worship. Right? From Othniel the Ideal, right? The guy that everyone wants to be like, the guy that everyone sees, right? It wasn't his credentials. It wasn't his family that actually makes him. What was it? It was the spirit. And here's your word to think about from Othniel. It's power. It's power. Right. In the Old Testament, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the workings of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people for a specific amount of time, and then he would empower them to do something, and then he would leave often. All right. That is not the way it works in the New Covenant. But Jesus promises before he sends into heaven, he says, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. <laughs> Here, here's the beauty of what is true of Othniel is true of us, that the same spirit that dwelt on Othniel for a specific amount of time dwells permanently in you. The same Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave dwells in his church for all time, permanently. This is why, by the way, we believe in the eternal security of the believer, that once you are a believer in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. How do you break that seal? You cannot. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes you born again, who regenerates you, who makes you a new creature. How can you be made unnew? You cannot, right? Unless you can break the power of the Holy Spirit, which you cannot. But what I want us to see is, y'all, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Jesus says everything we need through Peter, he says, everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in the spirit of God. The key to being used is not your family, it's not your education, it's not what you've done, all these things. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And it is God's will for his church to be filled and controlled by his spirit. He says in Ephesians 5, do not be foolish, understand what God's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled, be yielded to the Spirit of God. And if you do that, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, there's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all these things in your life. That is the will of God for you. He has given you His Spirit so that you can do mighty things in His name. I'm not talking about raising people from the dead. If you do that, get it on camera, then I'll believe it. But I am talking about you can do great things in the power of God. In fact, God empowers his people and gives his spirit to do that thing. The very power over sin he's given in his spirit. The power to, to know what to do and, and to be guided by him. He is, the, he is the comforter. He's the one who gives strength. He's the one who gives hope. He's the one who brings change. You can't change your kids. You can't change your neighbor. You can't change your friend. The spirit does all that. And he can use you as a mouthpiece, but he is the one who does it. And God wants to use your life, but he does it in the power of your spirit. And so what we need to get to is we need to be tapping into that by walking with God, by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us, right? It's not you, it's God in you. And that's the people that God is strongly supporting. 
So the word for that is power. Ehud the sinister. What's our word for him? Right? He's got limitations. He's got weaknesses. Here's our word. Uniqueness. Where we see a limit, a weakness, is actually an opportunity. If you think about this, who made Ehud left-handed? It was God. On purpose. He wasn't like, oh, man, I messed up. I got another lefty down there. Man. In fact, I would probably suggest that God made him left-handed specifically for this event in his life. For this one event, like Ruth, I mean, like Esther, for such a time as this, she was raised up. For one event in your life, yes, it was hard growing up and you had to learn with the spoon backwards and the scissors and Jewish elementary school were hard. But I made you this way, I made you unique for one reason, right? And sometimes our weaknesses and our limitations are actually preparation to do great things. Because ours is a God who uses not super gifted people with limitations in surprising ways. That's just what he does. Because when you are weak in an area, here's what happens. You are forced to be dependent. See, if I'm really good at something, what's the temptation? To trust in my ability. I went to seminary. I had actually a decent GPA, which is amazing. I could trust in that. I could trust in, I've preached for 11 and a half years now. I could just trust in that. I've done this before, I could trust in that. But if this is an area of weakness, I am forced to be dependent. And when we are dependent, our heart is fully his and God says, I'm getting behind that. And so the weaknesses are actually a place where God moves, right? If you think about, and we see this throughout history. Look at the Bible. The two guys that wrote kind of the most of, of the New Testament, as far as books, was Paul. The Old Testament was Moses. These are two guys by their own testimony and by the testimony of others. They are lousy speakers. Moses is, can't even, he's like, oh, I can't talk. Right? Paul, when you, other people say about him, he's a lousy preacher. He's real sharp, but he ain't a great speaker. And these are the guys that are communicating the most in the New Testament. Y'all. I know that many of you don't know me personally. It's, you know, that's impossible because there's so many people. Most people think when they see me that I'm like this extroverted guy. Well, Bill's on stage, he must be. I am the worst. When you come to a party and if I don't know anybody, I'm in the corner. I am an introverted person. I really don't like people. I, I, mean, I do, but I kind of, you scare me, you just do. I mean, I just, I am introverted. I am not an outgoing person. I am, and I, this is not being humble, this is being accurate. I am average 50% intelligence guy at best. I might even be on the other side. That's why I was a PE major. You don't choose PE if you're smart. Okay? So, th this, and then, that's just who I am. And I also, I, I got fear of man issues. I got people-pleasing issues. That's weaknesses all over. And so God, in his sense of humor, is like, you don't like public speaking. Great. I'm gonna put you in front of people. Why? So that ultimately I can't trust in my ability. I have to trust in God. And this is what God does. This is why 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. A jar of clay cracks and it's weak and can be broken. And that's on pur as purposeful. That's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And the point is, yes, you're weak. That's, that's the point. <laughs> that's the whole point. And so you don't have to come up with excuses. Well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a college student. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not smart enough. The question is, are you, it's not, are you, are you, too, are you strong enough? It's a question, are you weak enough? 
right? Because maybe, maybe that issue in your life that you, you know, was brokenness for 20 years, God is gonna use that and you're gonna be able to minister to all these people that have that same issue. Your depression and your anxiety that you struggle with, you're gonna be able to, to come alongside this person who's struggling with that. Your season of life right now where you got three kids and you're just like changing diapers and you're going crazy and you're like, this, this is the hardest thing I've ever, that season is going to train you up and teach you so that in 10 years when you're like, oh, this is great, you know, they're kinda, they change themselves now, they dress themselves now and they feed themselves, but there's gonna be someone else right behind you, you're gonna be able to go in. Or maybe your train wreck of a life where you were you're going serving yourself or maybe you had an affair or maybe whatever it was, is that God, you can show others now, this is the power of God and his redemption in the life of one person. So that weakness becomes a strength. And I don't know what it is for you, but, but that, that's for you to kind of to work out. But again, the question is not, are you strong enough, is are you weak enough? I found this quote from Hudson Taylor, I love it. I think it just kind of summarizes well. He says, God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me, Hudson Taylor, because I was weak enough God does not do great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. That's a great encouragement to a five foot six, losing a half an inch a year guy, right? To be a little guy, and that's okay, right? Because God takes a crippled guy who's probably a teenager, and he makes them the general of Israel. He takes a bunch of fishermen and hot-tempered dudes. He makes them apostles. God comes as a unheralded Jewish carpenter who conquers sin and death. It's just what he does, right? That's Ehud, the sinister. That's, that's uniqueness. Don't, don't shy away from how God's wired you, made you. Here's the last point, then we'll worship. Shamgar the who? And here's my word for him, swing away. Don't hit anybody. Metaphorically, swing away. Right. What do I mean by that? Take what you got and just use it. Right, take your ox goat or whatever you have and use it. We have a problem in the, in the church where everyone wants to go out there. I wanna to go to China, great. That's great, if God calls you to China, great. But you know what, before you go to China, just swing away in Mayfair. Swing away in South Gardens. Take what God has given you, take your gifts, take your abilities, take your passions, and just start praying, God, how can I use this? God has given, man, we got some gifted people. So if you're a super creative person, use your gifts, sorry, Siri, be quiet. Use your gifts to, to see where, how you can reach people, impact people. If you're an artist, how can my art do this? If you're, if you're creative, how can this? If you're a great cook, you like to cook, God loves food. He says, kill and eat, All right? So God loves food, be a good cook, see how you can use hospitality, you're a good administrator. And, and one thing that I learned in seminary uh, from Prof. Hendricks that continues to kind of ring in my ear, we often, we identify our weaknesses and we always try to make our weaknesses stronger. And Hendricks used to say, strengthen your strengths. Get better at your strengths. You know, surround yourself with people that can fill in the gaps of your weaknesses. So if you're, if you're a good businessman, become a better businessman. If you're a good mechanic, be a better mechanic. You're a good musician, get better. Because we as Christians, if anyone, should be excellent in all things. No more slackness in the, I mean, we need great Christian businessmen. We, got great, we need great doctors and nurses and teachers. And you ought to enhance those gifts and those wirings and learn to swing your ox code well. You ought to build a good house if you're a builder. You ought to fix a good refrigerator. You ought to serve a good cup of coffee. Please stop serving bad cups of coffee if you're a barista. I mean, come on. I can tell you. But I mean, 
Do it well, swing it well where you're at and let the chips fall as they may. And then if God takes you to China, great. And if he leaves you here, do great things here. That's, that's, that's Shamgar. And that's what we need to be. That's being the church. We start here and then if God spreads you out, spread you out. Some of you are painters. Come on, help us paint one of our, our members' houses in two weeks or next week, right? If you just got abilities, just start swinging. Some of you ain't swinging. You're letting everyone else swing, right? God wants to use you. He's gifted you. Start using your gifts. Start using them now. That is the unfamous trio. I think some good lessons for us. I'll trust that the Spirit will kind of move them in your life. And here's the overarching message of the book, and we'll close with this, is that when people cry out to God, he answers. God rescues. He rescues those who have been rebellious for 18, 20, 40, 80 years. And so if you're here and you're, you're, you're serving something else, God can save you too, right? That's the message over, the, over all the book. God ultimately sends the ultimate savior, the ultimate Yasha, the one who would save, and his son, Jesus, and we worship him. So let's do that now. Why don't you stand? We'll sing and worship through song. Let me pray. Father, I pray uh, for our, just our time. I pray you would use this time to just maybe speak to some people where you want to use them, where, where they're neglecting gifts and abilities and things, opportunities you've given them. And I pray that we would uh, just be a church that, We want to to be strengthened by you, that you look to and fro across the earth and you see the people of CBC. And you want to throw your weight behind them because our hearts are full of yours. So I pray that would be true of us. And use us in great ways. Just use us to impact people and to love people well. Uh, We'll give you the glory because we do it for you. In Jesus' name.